the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins me again to talk about new COVID treatments, the holidays, just how long this pandemic is going to last, and also the fact that coronavirus has been found in deer. Did you know that psoriasis affects 1 million Canadians and women are diagnosed most commonly during their reproductive years? This can not only affect their pregnancy, but also their decision to have a family. Dr. Elaine Dupuy joins me to talk about a new global campaign for women called Advantage Hers, plus three tips on how to affair-proof your marriage. And guess what? Insulin is 100 years old. Dr. Jane from Surrey, British Columbia, joins me to educate you about everything diabetes. And why is condom use down in the pandemic? I'm not so sure, but the STI rates are up. So is the Sunday Night Health Show, which starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Dr. Jason Kendrachuk joins me on the line. He's an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. Good evening, Dr. Kendrachuk. How are you? I'm doing good, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, You know, each week goes by and we think... (laughs) We know there'll be more <laughs> that will be coming out this week for next week's show. And I mean, just unbelievable that COVID is, we're still with COVID and there are so many newsworthy topics to discuss. One of which is the new pill that um, Pfizer announced this week that caused their share prices to increase by 10 or 11% and Merck's to, to drop. Tell us about this pill. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we, we already had heard about Merck uh, with with their uh, their new antiviral pill that uh, that they've uh, at least submitted all their information for for their emergency use authorization, which is molnupiravir. Uh, now Pfizer has uh, submitted or, or is about to submit their information for Paxlovid, which is another antiviral. Um, you know, basically the pill works uh, in a different way than what the Pfizer or the the Merck pill sorry works. Um, but it is still geared towards trying to decrease the ability of the virus to create copies of itself. So, you know, it, 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 it isn't going to, again, end the pandemic on its own. It's certainly not going to take the place of a vaccine, but it gives us some ability to provide treatment for patients that have mild to moderate symptoms and certainly those that are at risk of uh, severe disease. So if you have people that have breakthrough infections or who haven't yet been vaccinated, you now have something else that potentially they'll be able to get during that that early, early stage of disease. Something else in the toolbox. Now, the Merck pill um, was um, noted to uh, or found to have a reduction of 50% of, of severe disease and hospitalization and death. And Pfizer was 89%, which is hence the uh, stock price. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, travel. Um, so this is considered a, a a better antiviral than the Merck one. In fact, they had to stop the trial. It's my understanding. It was such great results. They had to stop the trial early. Yeah, and actually, in both cases, so for for both Pfizer and Merck, they they actually you know stopped the trials early. Um, you know, we get in this position of saying, you know, listen, the the data is great. Certainly, fifty percent was already fantastic. Now to see eighty nine percent. Uh, potentially with, uh, with with the Pfizer product, that's that's amazing. Um, but we still have to think about a couple of things. One is these are you know these are things that happen or you take once you get infected. So certainly having the vi- vaccine up front is always the better way to go. The, the second question is going to be whether or not we can get these products out to areas uh, that uh, that that unfortunately are, are underserved. So can you get those out to countries that are dealing with with surges of infection? Um, that do not have the economic means to be able to buy 
uh, these products? And I think that's a bigger question that we still fundamentally have to address. Absolutely, because globally, COVID-19 cases are near 250 million as the Delta surge uh, eases. So we're actually seeing um, an easing of the virus, viral cases, but we're actually seeing significantly high numbers around the world still. Yeah, and you know, there's some troubling trends, right? I mean, certainly we, we've heard uh, you know some concerns coming out of Eastern Europe as of late. Um, Africa continues to be a concern. I think that you know, there's been a lot of information that's come out recently talking about uh, you know the inability or the lack of testing that we've seen, and certainly the undercounting of, of potential cases there. But you know, even here in Manitoba, you know, you know we've we've been dealing with a, a slow and kind of steady increase. Uh, you know, probably the, the past few weeks, close to, uh, you know, almost a few months now, and we're starting to see things pick up. And, and certainly Ontario, you know, the numbers compared from this week to last week, we're seeing that increase again. So, you know, we're, we're going to see certainly, um, you know, some outbreaks and some flares that, that pop up. Um, it's probably going to be better than what it's been, but we're still in, you know, in, in a concern uh, position right now. And, and what do you think the U.S. Uh, is opening borders to fully vaccinated travelers starting tomorrow, I guess, the November the 8th? Um, do you think that's going to have an impact? Um, when, I, when I think of returning to, the, uh, to Canada, and, and I'm an American citizen and I have certainly traveled to the U.S. US and come back, um, but I think the, you know... Uh, I have a test within 72 hours prior to. I wasn't chosen as one of the random people to get tested. Um, but I think, what about three to five days after um, my flight? I actually probably should be tested then. But we're not typically testing people who are being asked to watch their symptoms. Do you think that opening the U.S. border to fully vaccinated travelers is going to have an impact? We're going to see a surge in cases with that? It's a good question, right? So certainly, I, I'm always one that likes to, uh, you know, to, to be a little bit more cautious and, you know, than just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of my pants. So I, I like the idea of having additional testing. But all that being said, Delta is in both Canada and the U.S. So one of the things we have to appreciate is that the introduction of additional Delta cases moving from, say, Canada to the U.S., uh, you know, frankly, is probably not going to make a lot of difference in, in many communities because they already have community transmission. So you're, you know, you're basically add, adding some additional sparks to areas that already have fires burning. Um, you know, we want to limit those, but at the same time, I think we have to appreciate the virus has been there. So I, I think that there's, you know, there's a, an aspect of that we have to consider. Um, the bigger question to me is if we have additional variants that are coming in or we have the introduction into areas that have had low vaccine uptake um, and aren't getting a lot of coverage, that to me is, is where we could see a concern. And government officials probably are not looking at that. They're, they're not probably looking at, um, you know, the community from which you hail um, and returning to that, whether that community is, you know, has a low vaccination rate or not. Well, and it's difficult, right? I mean, again, mm-hmm. here, here in Manitoba, we have complete regional separation in, in vaccine uptake, right? So, you know, if you look at Manitoba as a whole, which is most of what the data um, is going to provide, it actually looks like we have really good vaccine uptake. But if you go down to a community you know, versus community perspective, now you start to see those nuances. So I, I think you get back to having to rely on people making good choices. For the most part, I think people will. A few will make bad choices, um, unfortunately, but they probably were going to try and find a way around uh, the, the whole testing issue anyway. So it's, it's tough. It, it's a really, really difficult situation as we try and go back 
to some type of a normalcy that we had before. I, I know. And so I got on a plane recently and I sat down within five minutes, the person sitting next to me started to cough and you're just like, oh, <laughs> I wanted to say, do you have KN95 masks on? <laughs> um, masks are very helpful. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. And if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is one 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. You can email me as well at at com. Uh, Dr. Kinderchuk, uh, as we uh, look toward winter and the weather gets colder, people are driven indoors, then there's holiday gatherings. What impact do you think that will have on COVID-19? Yeah, you know, listen, we're, we're in this position again where we, we know that certainly the vaccines are, are not going to be 100% sterilizing, uh, you know, for, for everybody that takes them. They, they, they are not going to, to give us that regardless of, of how many boosters we take. Now, they're going to reduce in infectivity and reduce all those symptoms of disease. But we still potentially can see cases. And if you put people in close proximity with one another, especially if you have a mix of vaccinated, unvaccinated or vulnerable and, and, uh, and, and people that have uh, stronger immune responses, you may see uh, you know, outbreaks that occur, or transmission events that occur. So I think anytime you bring people in a close proximity to one another um, for an extended period of time, there's going to be a risk. And we will probably see some bouncing in cases. I think that's what's going to happen, uh, you know, during the holidays this year. But we're, we're probably going to get out of the, the really high waves that we see. But it's going to be pretty, you know, pretty, uh, you know, wavy for, I think, the, the next, you know, probably six to 12 months with, uh, with cases rising and falling in areas. Oh, wow. Wavy for six to 12 months. That's, yeah. I mean, that's uh, something to think about. Uh, and something else associated, we associate reindeer with uh, some holidays around here. Um, <laughs> but what about wild deer? I was surprised to see this. You sent me this article about wild deer having coronavirus and, uh, and a fairly large percentage. What's, what is the meaning of all of that? Yeah, we, we've kind of been talking about this for a bit. So there were some early studies that had looked at, at the potential to infect deer uh, in, in the laboratory and, and was able to show that we could do that, which gave some concerns about, well, what happens if this virus gets into wildlife? And then lo and behold, people that were doing uh, studies for, for antibodies uh, in, in wildlife in the U.S. had recognized that it looked like deer had been exposed to the virus in, in the wild. Well, now there's quite a bit of data showing that not only are we seeing that there is exposure, but it looks like there is transmission amongst deer. Um, and there's one of the things that comes out of this, that when you look at the sequence of the viruses in deer and you compare those back to humans in, in the same areas or the same regions, what you see is that those viruses are, are extremely similar. And what that suggests is not only is there transmission between the deer, but it also looks like there is multiple the presence of multiple spillover events from humans and animals. And this is a concern for us. We don't know the ability of the virus to move uh, from deer back into humans or, or how long the virus remains infectious within deer. Um, but it opens up this idea for us of saying, yeah, we might be able to get control of this in humans, but we need to be watching that other aspect, which is wildlife, because that's going to be a big thing for us to to really try and maintain control of this virus for, for a long period of time. And this was seen in 80 percent of deer, of wild deer. It's, that's the astounding thing, right? And, and the data has continued to come back suggesting that they're actually wild deer. It's not like we're talking about a few animals that are showing up positive. You can have some regional specificity, um, but certainly it looks like there is 
rampant transmission in, in these animals. And again, we, we don't know what that means for being able to, to jump back into humans, but it certainly should really open our eyes to the potential that this is something we need to investigate and we need to get an answer for pretty quickly. And, and we don't know if um, how ill the deer became, because uh, it's my, is that, am I correct in that? Um, because the deer that were tested were hunted. So it was, um, yeah. they were already dead, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and, and a lot of this comes from even when they're sampling on on animals that uh, that have been unfortunately hit on the road. Um, you know, so far, at least the data that I've seen suggests certainly the serology data suggests that that the animals aren't aren't dying in massive amounts. Um, but we could be missing some of that certainly, right? And I think that the big question for us is. Um, even if they have very mild disease, if, it, if it's something like what we see with MERS and camels, um, you know, would you actually be able to get control of that and, and recognize that in, in wild deer? And to me, the bigger question is animals are still a big part of food security, especially in, uh, you know, in northern communities and underserved communities. We look at things like elk and reindeer and, and deer uh, and other animals. So we need to be able to start screening more widely to see where the virus is going and what animals it's affecting. And, and cows, for example, for a lot of the meat eaters in this yeah. world. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if the research has been done there. Very interesting. Anyway, um, I wonder what next week will bring. <laughs> Hopefully you <laughs> back to the show. <laughs> but I'm sure there will be lots to report on and lots to talk about. Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much once again for coming on the Sunday Night Health Show. Have a good week, Maureen. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It might surprise you. It did me. Psoriasis is a common chronic inflammatory skin condition that affects a million Canadians and 125 million people worldwide. And for women, the diagnosis and treatment affects them in a very different way because it coincides with peak reproductive years. Joining me on the line is Dr. Elaine Dupuis, a dermatologist at Beacon Dermatology and on faculty with the University of Calgary. Good evening, Dr. Dupuis. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining me. I, You know, I've, I learned a lot just reading a little bit about um, the background that was sent, and, and I was very, very surprised at um, at some of the statistics and also how this um, psoriasis, this diagnosis of psoriasis during this time of life affects women. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Of course. So psoriasis, we often think of it as just a skin disease, but it, it actually isn't. It's, you know, it affects multiple systems in our body. And, and, you know, for example, it can affect not only your skin, but your joints. And one of the things with psoriasis, it often comes up during this time of age of when most women are considering pregnancy. And, of course, that has, you know, an impact on on not only a woman's ability to become pregnant, but also in her her course uh, during her pregnancy. And and this isn't a subject that um, women necessarily talk to their doctors about before they decide to get pregnant is that is there a severe uh, lack of information or uh, guidance in in terms of um, a woman becoming pregnant and maintaining the pregnancy I think it's I think it's just you know maybe not having all the knowledge or or the information or access to that information uh, at least in my practice, what I've seen is is not everyone necessarily brings this up as a as a topic when they first come to an appointment. And so, we do know that you know over fifty percent of pregnancies uh, do tend to be unplanned, and.
And, you know, if someone does become pregnant, there is a lot of information that is available in helping to manage their their condition. And so it's often encouraged to to speak with their their physician about it when they do uh, decide if they're going to become pregnant or if they are pregnant. And women have uh, more fertility issues if they have uh, chronic inflammatory diseases like psoriasis or... Yes, the data does does show that there can uh, be an impact on fertility. And certainly we do know, at least in psoriasis, that having good control of your disease not only impacts mom during pregnancy, but also baby during pregnancy. Because there can be a significant amount of pain and discomfort, not to mention embarrassment and self-esteem issues with psoriasis. Um, but that can impact a woman's quality of life from, from sleeping to nutrition to mood. Um, so it, it can't be easy then to throw a pregnancy on top of that. You know, how, how challenging is that for women? Well, it, it definitely, it, it certainly adds another layer of complexity uh, into that. Uh, one of the things as well is often, you know, there's concern um, sometimes if there's not information about how that their condition would impact their pregnancy course or even the different treatment options that are available and, and how that would impact pregnancy or even breastfeeding, for example. Right. And um, and also, how how about how would the pregnancy flipping that... Um, backwards, uh, would the pregnancy impact or their condition over the long term in particular? So we don't have a, a lot of definitive data with that, but we certainly do know that pregnancy can impact disease course. So if- for example, sometimes women can have flares of their psoriasis throughout their pregnancy and also into that post-pregnancy period. It, and what is a flare of psoriasis like? What, what are your, how do your patients present? Yeah, so with flares of psoriasis, this can present um, with, for example, increasing symptoms for this can be with itch or this can be with pain. This can also present with more involvement of their skin. And it's not unusual that if a patient with psoriasis, because they do have other disease conditions that can come up in association with it, such as psoriatic arthritis, that Mm -hmm. sometimes these can present or flare. And and what is psoriatic arthritis like for for women? And to be honest with you, I didn't realize that most people diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis would be so uh, between the ages of 18 and 45. Mm-hmm. So with psoriatic arthritis, uh, over over 30% of women or of individuals sorry, with, with psoriasis will go on to develop psoriatic arthritis over time. Um, and certainly the worse their skin disease is, it tends to have more of an impact on their joint disease. Wow. And what is the treatment for psoriasis? And, and is there a way to prevent that psoriatic arthritis? So with psoriasis, there's a variety of treatments. For for molar localized or limited involvement of the skin, we can treat with topical medications such as with creams or ointments. But if for individuals who have more extensive disease or more coverage with their skin or with involvement of their joints, then we usually look to, to different medications such as oral medications or even injectable medications such as biologics. Okay. So there's, there's quite a range that, of, that, of available options. And, and so these are important discussions that women need to have with their doctors, especially around family planning. Um, and so in, in your study, what were some of the findings in the study 
um, that you did about uh, women who have chronic inflammatory diseases and how that conversation um, is brought up with physicians or not. Is it, is it the physicians typically initiating the conversation? So the data did out of the study, which was uh, of surveying of women who had chronic inflammatory conditions, the data showed that uh, 43% of women had actually delayed becoming pregnant because they were uncertain about in terms of how their disease would impact their pregnancy or how that would impact them or even their baby. And so there was a bit of unaddressed concerns associated with their disease. Often it's often this conversation is not always brought up necessarily at a medical appointment. And, you know, either a patient can bring it up or the physician can bring it up. And what we're hoping is to encourage more um, with both sides of bringing up this topic of discussion. Uh, but did, you found that more women brought it up, three out of five women um, exactly. who, uh, who had a discussion with their family with their family doctor about family planning, um, had to initiate the conversation themselves, which, which can't necessarily be easy. And, and maybe some of the doctors don't have, you know, not all GPs have all the information about every um, medical condition out there. I mean, nobody could expect that. But, um, but is this something that you encourage uh, medical doctors to become educated about? Of course, I think there's there's so much information out there, and often when a woman a woman is thinking about becoming pregnant, or she is becoming pregnant. Um, she has her family doctor involved. She has her obstetrician involved, and there is a specialist uh, such as dermatologist or the rheumatologist. And so, what we're encouraging is this conversation to occur between all specialties. So it's more of a multidisciplinary approach. And, and also women, um, when they're actually pregnant, um, you know, do women tend to stop their treatment out of fear that it might harm the baby? That can occur. And, and in that survey, the findings showed that over one-third had actually discontinued their treatment um, or had initiated discontinuation of their treatment because there was concerns. And so that's where having those crucial conversations with their physicians or their specialists comes in because certainly there are treatment options that are not suitable for during pregnancy, but there are very good alternatives as well. And, and so if a woman does stop her treatment that may not have, that she may not be aware that it doesn't have an, or wouldn't have an, a negative impact on the baby, she could actually make her condition worse uh, during her pregnancy. Exactly. So that would be the risk that with discontinuation of your treatment, that potentially the disease could flare. And, and how do women feel? And how did, um, what was the result in your survey about how women felt about the information that they received? Oftentimes in healthcare, in general, women feel like they're dismissed or that there's um, not enough information. And, and did they feel the same in your survey? Yeah, so the survey did highlight that, that there was this un, unaddressed information or kind of unmet need of, of, you know, in terms of what the disease impact is or having that information so they could make an informed decision on, on their treatment or how to go about with managing their condition during pregnancy. So there is, there is an area there where there's more information that needs to be shared between patients and their specialists. And this is such an important subject. How can women find support about this? So 
there is a campaign that is going on right now. It's called Advantage Hers, and it's a global initiative that's now here in Canada. And essentially, it's to help women increase awareness and help to empower them to get some more information and to encourage them to be connecting with their their uh, healthcare specialist to find out some more information, whether they are anticipating pregnancy in the near future or, or down the road. And information on the Advantage HERS campaign can and resources can also be found on the Advantage HERS website. And, and that website is at AdvantageHERS.com? Uh, I, I'll have to look it up specifically, but I can certainly pass it along to you, yes. Sure, or people can just Google Advantage HERS, and I'm sure yes. that would yes. pop up. I can do it quite quickly myself <laughs> right now and get informed myself. Um, uh, but actually, uh, you know, very, very important information uh, for women so they can develop a long-term plan tailored to their individual needs, especially around chronic, chronic inflammatory disease. Dr. Dupuis, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight and sharing this great information. You're welcome. Have yourself a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. Uh, We were talking about autoimmune diseases, and I didn't have the website at the top of my fingertips, but the website is autoimmunewarrior.org. Org. The campaign is Advantage Hers, and um, it is a global campaign to raise awareness about chronic inflammatory diseases. Okay, and we have another chronic inflammatory <laughs> disease subject coming up as well. This could be, uh, certainly be, a chronic disease subject. You know, so many people have extramarital affairs. Men have them, women have them, and yet, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy uh, sometimes for a lot of people. <laughs> Not easy for a lot of people to prevent themselves from having an affair, especially if you're surrounded by, you know, attractive people, whether whether it be at work. I mean, maybe you're not at work anymore because there's a pandemic, but, you know, in the neighborhood, whatever. Um, and so it's very difficult, especially, you know, as people are dealing with stress in this pandemic and otherwise. Uh, maybe they had financial issues or maybe they're just bored. Um, or, um, you know, unresolved conflict, financial problems, lots of problems in the relationship. And um, so some people, in spite of those problems, in spite of the boredom, they are actually able to maintain monogamy in their relationship. And so how do they do that? Well, I was reading a recent research study by Justin Laymiller, and um, he came to three conclusions as to why people are able to... Uh, be monogamous, why people don't cheat. We talk about people who cheat all the time, but these are the ones that don't cheat. And if you are like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be cheating in my relationship, you should listen to this. This is wise, wise words. Um, but you find yourself cheating and you wonder, why do I do that? Well, one thing, it might be that you're not investing enough in your relationship. And, uh, you know, thinking about that relationship, putting that on the front burner, you never want to let yourself be in a situation where temptation can move instantly from imaginary to real either. So these people who are able to maintain monogamy, they don't text or sex with other people. They don't email your possible lover. You know, you got to get a grip on yourself and your relationship, not somebody outside of your marriage. The heart wants what it wants, but you will get over it and no one will get hurt in the meantime. So... Um, that's number one. 
Number two is, you know, you can, you, you know, say you meet somebody, you're attracted to them and, you know, you can't just be attracted to one person for your entire life. Um, and so you meet somebody and you think, you think they are just the bee's knees. They are the cat's pajamas. They have it all going on. They're a bag of chips and something else. Um, but you know what? What you wanted, those people who maintain monogamy in their relationship actually have the ability to find something they don't like about the person that they're attracted to. It could be the car they drive. It could be what they're wearing. It could be their hands. It could be something. But you want to Think of something that you don't like about the person to whom you are attracted. And as I mentioned, it can be physical, emotional, um, whatever, where they live. Um, I remember a patient who said that this, some, his lover didn't have kitchen cabinet fronts. <laughs> and that was a big turnoff for him. And then the other thing is, the other rule here is uh, to think of all the things that you would lose. Those people who can maintain monogamy in their relationship actually, you know, they understand consequences and they think about it and they think, what would I lose if this affair was to be found out? And believe you me, the affair will be found out out of guilt, stupidity, or good old fashioned gossip will get you in the end. So, you know, it's very, very difficult in the heat of the moment or when you're particularly aroused, and especially these days online, that arousal is very real. Online people, I've heard so many patients of mine, so many people say, you know, they were attracted to somebody and they'd never even met them. They'd never even seen them from the neck down. <laughs> Anyway, I have no idea what that body is like. Um, but you want to consider the worst possible outcome if you have an affair. So what would your worst possible outcome be? Would the marriage be over? Because it's, an affair is a deal breaker for a lot of people. Would your children be devastated if they found out? Would they be embarrassed? Would they just think less of you? Uh, might there be financial insecurity if you were to split up with your partner, your spouse, whomever. And and what about a house move? Would you have to leave your family room, your favorite living room, the fabulous um, media center that you have, and, um, you know, leave your clubs or whatever, if you belong to a yacht club or a country club, um, would all of that go because financial security? Would you lose your friends and, and your family? Would they think differently of you. And so it's all of those things um, that you want to think about before you hop in the sack with somebody other than your spouse. Um, but don't imagine for a minute that you'll get away with being unfaithful. As I said, um, as I did say, that you will definitely be found out. And I have so many people who will say, it's mainly men, I have to say in my clinical practice, mainly men who will say, um, you know, I, 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 you talked about it, I heard you talk about it on the radio or wherever, TED Talk, whatever, and they'll say, I got caught exactly the same way. I didn't have a password on my phone. Not that I'm giving you guys a hint on how to do this right. <laughs> I'm not condoning extramarital affairs by any stretch of the imagination. Keep it in your imagination. That's okay. Um, to fantasize uh, is absolutely fine, but um, you just don't want to act on it because, you know what, there are going to be consequences and that can be extremely sad for a lot of people. But you know what? Yes, I'm always an optimist and a lot of marriages survive the affair. And it's, in fact, the new shame. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. 
Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Hell Show. We've got lots to talk about on this hour as well. Uh, first and foremost, 2021 marks the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin, of course, the hallmark uh, treatment for diabetes. We're also going to be talking about condom use and rising STI rates. And uh, given daylight savings time, uh, it's time for rest. And uh, But is it just sleep that you need? But right now we're going to be starting uh, with the discovery of insulin, which was 100 years ago, if you can believe that. And joining me on the line to help me out with that is Dr. Ash K. Jane. He's a medical doctor, clinical and research endocrinologist in Surrey, British Columbia. He's also the past president of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists chronologist, the Canadian chapter, and also a columnist of Medscape Diabetes and Endocrinology. Good evening, Dr. Jane. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for joining me. I actually can't believe that insulin is 100 years old. I know. And the the cherry on the cake there is that it is a Canadian discovery. Uh, It's been around for a long time. Prior to the discovery of insulin, uh, diabetes was pretty much a death sentence uh, for those living with especially type 1 diabetes. That's right. And can you just describe for the listeners what type 1 diabetes is? We hear a lot about type 2 diabetes, but uh, what's type 1 diabetes? Absolutely. So type 1 diabetes is a condition in which uh, an individual is absolutely unable to produce any insulin, Uh, Insulin, as we know, is the hormone produced by our body that regulates our blood sugars uh, and keeps them in check. So if there is no insulin, these sugars can uh, rise extremely high and that can even become fatal. And what are some of the symptoms of hyperglycemia or or, what what do you say it can become fatal? Um, There's diabetic coma, but um, what are some of the problems associated with high blood sugars? Yeah, so high blood sugars can cause multiple symptoms, including uh, blurriness of vision, increased thirst, uh, using uh, peeing all the time, uh, you know, losing weight, uh, just overall fatigue. But these occur generally at a much higher degree of blood sugar. Uh, For many individuals, their sugars would probably run high uh, without them knowing which is why it's very important to monitor blood sugars or keep checking what the sugar levels are. Mm-hmm. And when is diabetes type 1 uh, mainly diagnosed? What, what, what age? Yeah, typically it's diagnosed uh, in childhood. So if someone were to get diabetes in childhood, it would most likely be type 1, although the lines are getting quite blurred there. But uh, type 1 diabetes can, in fact, get diagnosed at any age, uh, you know, from infancy all the way up until even in your 90s. But mostly we see um, kids being diagnosed, uh, those who have diabetes type 1, it's children. But when you say uh, the lines are being blurred, are you referring to the obesity epidemic that we're seeing in children? You're right, Maureen. Uh, Children are now uh, even prone to type 2 diabetes as well. Mm -hmm. And what is type 2 diabetes? What's the difference between type 1 and type 2? Yeah, so type 2 diabetes is the more commonly encountered type of diabetes uh, in which our body is producing insulin, but there is a demand and supply mismatch. Uh, The insulin that's being produced is not able to do its job uh, appropriately, and hence uh, the blood sugars start rising. Uh, This can occur typically in adulthood um, and is generally associated with increased body weight, you know, uh, the millennial lifestyle, uh, you know, uh, sedentary uh, behavior and stuff like that. 
So, so it doesn't sound like the pandemic. You just <laughs> got piqued my interest there. The pandemic is very good for um, risk of uh, diabetes type 2. There's a lot of people who are working from home now, so they're less active really mm-hmm. working from home. And you say that the millennial lifestyle, it seems like the millennials love working from home. <laughs> Um, which, you know, and, and also there's DoorDash and, you know, nothing against DoorDash, but, <laughs> but, you know, you can have food delivered anytime and, and typically restaurant food is a lot less healthy than in general, there are some very healthy restaurants, um, but there's like one, um, <laughs> but for the most part, fast food, um, can increase your risk of, of gaining weight along with that sedentary lifestyle. And, and what impact does that have on a person's risk for diabetes type two? Oh, it has a huge impact. Uh, so factors that can increase the risk of type two diabetes include uh, a family history of type two diabetes, uh, having overweight or obesity, uh, lack of sleep, increased stress levels, which I know you speak a lot about as well in your show. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is, uh, you know, other risk factors uh, such as uh, just sedentary behavior overall, uh, all those can increase the risk of type two diabetes quite a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, therefore, exercise would be something that would be very good um, for to prevent diabetes type two. Um, uh, as well, the other point I wanted to make is that sometimes people who are diagnosed with diabetes type 2 require insulin as well to manage their blood sugar. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Uh, so as the diabetes can progress, uh, we do need to use medications uh, such as insulin even. Now, the thing with insulin, though, is that, you know, the same thing uh, that was discovered 100 years ago that could save lives uh, if not dosed appropriately can even take lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hence, it's very important that people monitor their blood sugars uh, while on these medications that could potentially cause a low sugar. Um, Historically, all we had was these uh, finger sticks, uh, which were, you know, you would have to draw blood and then use a test strip to check your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. But now the latest technology advances uh, have led to uh, development of continuous glucose monitoring, such as, say, the Dexcom G6 uh, glucose monitoring device, which people can use to check their sugars even without having to poke themselves. And so they can monitor, I mean, sometimes people will monitor their symptoms and feel, oh, my blood sugar is low. Um, But this gives this continuous monitoring. We're going to be talking to uh, a patient shortly um, about what life is like compared comparatively, because, you know, having uh, diabetes as a child and um, needing to needing insulin and needing to watch sugars, that's a very stressful situation, um, especially for parents. Oh, extremely. I've had parents of uh, uh, children with diabetes who can't sleep at night because they're constantly worried about, uh, you know, how their kid is doing in the room and uh, in, in, in the bedroom adjacent to theirs. Uh, but with these new glucose monitoring devices, uh, the cool thing is that uh, the parents can follow their kids' sugar levels, even when the kid is at school, for instance. And uh, I was talking about the Dexcom G6 uh, glucose monitor, where apparently if uh, if the if the kid with diabetes who's wearing the sensor has a low sugar, the parents get an alert on their phones. So it, it's very reassuring. Uh, absolutely, it's just and, and talk about you know stress. The parents having stress could 
puts them at risk for type 2 diabetes if they're concerned about their child um, who's in the next room, who's probably not concerned at all, um, you know, as a six or seven year old. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's it's fantastic that there has been some progress in the treatment of, of diabetes. Uh, you mentioned the continuous glucose monitoring. Are there, are there any other, um, what else are we looking um, to in terms of treatment of diabetes type 1 and, and type 2? Yeah, for, for type 1, it has essentially always been insulins because we are giving back to the body what it is missing. But the newer types of insulins are much more stable, uh, hence the risk of low sugar is not as high as the older insulins, which is uh, quite a boon for people living with type 1 diabetes. With type 2 diabetes, we do know that when sugars are not well controlled, it increases the risk of heart attacks and strokes. So people living with diabetes have a two to three times higher risk of developing heart attack strokes or kidney damage. Uh, But now we have medications that not only help control the sugars, but as an additional benefit, they lower the risk of heart attacks, strokes, even cardiovascular death, and the risk of progressing to dialysis. So, you know, if there was ever a good time to be living with diabetes, uh, now would be it because of these advancements. That's amazing. Is that um, metformin? Is that um, what you're talking about in terms of reduction of risk? Oh, metformin is the granddaddy of medications for type 2. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the first-line treatment, been around for decades. Uh, but there's now newer types of medications like SGLT2 inhibitors. These dump that extra sugar in the urine and we pee them out. Mm-hmm. And these medications help to protect uh, the heart as well as the kidneys. Uh, as well as uh, another class of agents called GLP-1, which are generally taken as a shot once a week, sometimes as a pill as well. And these not only help to protect the heart, but they also lead to weight loss, uh, which is a very significant benefit for people struggling with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Wow. Uh, you know, it's amazing. I, I was actually asked to speak at a, um, an organization, Probus, um, doing another, yet another Zoom presentation tomorrow morning. And it was, <laughs> it, I think you should be giving the talk, um, <laughs> except they wanted to hear about sex. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, so I've done the talk, but I think I'll, I'll edit it because I did talk a lot about, um, you know, sedentary lifestyle and, or I'm going to, I'll plan to talk about that and type two diabetes. And, you know, and it's really about, you know, men's health as they advance in age and, um, you know, what are the things, uh, to look out for? And this is one of the, one of the biggest things is diabetes type two. I'm so happy to hear that there are so many new advances in that, but how much, uh, in terms of diabetes type two, um, Dr. Jane, how much, uh, is prevention, you know, can people prevent or turn this around? I'm so glad you asked me this question, Maureen, because uh, a lot of times, you know, we only diagnose diabetes when it's too late. Uh, a lot of people haven't been to their doctor for regular preventative health or monitoring. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I work at Surrey Memorial Hospital and, you know, I see sometimes that unfortunately people show up with a heart attack or stroke and that's when they first find out that they had diabetes, you know, with the sugars causing mayhem, they didn't even know about it. That's why we call it the silent disease. 
But when it comes to prevention, you know, if we find out about diabetes at an early enough stage, even when it is uh, what we call borderline diabetes or pre-diabetes, um, or when newly diagnosed, if people are able to incorporate a healthy lifestyle, eat healthy, um, you know, start exercising regularly, just 30 minutes a day, you know, five days a week, that's still really good. And if they're able to lose weight, uh, sleep better, then there is a huge chance that we can even put this condition into remission. So even though there's no cure for diabetes, we can reverse it or put it into remission with all these appropriate health measures. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane. I really appreciate your coming on the program tonight and educating everyone about diabetes type 1 and type 2. Thanks for having me. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday night health show. Strokes, I should say. Not just one, two. <laughs> Last half hour of the show. Um, I guess that daylight, that extra hour of sleep is killing me. Um, but the good news is, I not only do I have uh, Alex McKay, the executive director of SICAN, Dr. Alex McKay, um, joining me very shortly on the line, I also have uh, made contact with Nadia Brumer, who is the person who is going to talk to us about the continuous glucose monitoring device, the device that will change your life if you have diabetes type 1. Um, but right now, we're going to be talking about those little bedroom subjects. Sometimes they're fun, sometimes they're sexy, sometimes they're disturbing. And uh, this one might fall into that category. Alex McKay, PhD, joins me on the line. He's the Executive Director of the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada, SICAN. Good evening. Dr. McKay, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on the line. Um, so we're going to... Excellent. Uh, we're going to um, talk a little bit about condom use and, no surprise here, sexually transmitted infections on the rise when condom use is down. Tell me a little bit about the recent findings. Uh, well, our organization, in partnership with uh, Trojan Condoms, has uh, conducted a series of studies starting in 2013, uh, looking at university students' sexual behavior and their uh, sexual health uh, indicators, including uh, rates of condom use. So what we found is that over the last uh, decade or so, uh, condom use has declined pretty significantly amongst uh, young adults. And that does coincide with uh, a fairly consistent increase in common STIs. And, and what are some of the common STIs? Uh, well, there's a number of them. So the most common STI among young adults is uh, human papilloma virus, mm -hmm. HPV. Uh, herpes simplex virus is also uh, very common in this age group. And we've uh, seen a pretty uh, steep increase in uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis as well. Which, I mean, if, if that's not frightening enough to have you put on one put on a condom, why aren't people using condoms during sex at the university level anyway? Right. Well, uh, there's a number of uh, factors at play. So uh, one of the things we found in our studies with Trojan is that there's a pretty consistent decline in the level of concern around STIs. And that's what's driving the decrease in condom use. 
So there's probably a, a number of factors at play here. Uh, probably one of the most primary things, which is kind of a long-term uh, phenomena, is that if you go back uh, 10 or 20 years ago, particularly among young adults, including university students, the number one thing that was on people's minds was HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've seen a uh, stabilization in HIV rates. And there's been really good news uh, about HIV becoming a very treatable infection. And we have uh, new prevention men- measures like uh, PrEP and PEP. So uh, while that's all been really great news, um, it's kind of led to a complacency around the need for uh, condom use. And sort of underlying all of that, I think, are some common misconceptions that uh, people hold about some of these uh, common STIs. You know, yet I, I, I deal with patients who have been diagnosed with uh, an STI, um, more so young women than men. Um, and they once they have HPV, herpes, um, you know, chlamydia, they are freaking out on, on that side of it. So what's missing in terms of that uh, prevention? Uh, well, the freaking out about it, uh, is uh, illuminating because there's there continues to be uh, a real stigma attached to uh, to STIs, and that can lead people to kind of put their heads in the sand in the first place. And uh, often, when if people uh, are noticing they might have a symptom of an STI, they're reluctant to uh, seek treatment mm-hmm. for it because they feel there is a stigma attached to it. I would say the sort of number one misconception out there is that if you uh, do have an STI, that you're going to know about it. And in fact, most uh, cases of STI are asymptomatic. So there's no, the person doesn't have any symptoms. And we know that most cases of STI transmission are asymptomatic uh, transmission. And in some cases, people can have uh, STIs for years and not know about it. And that's uh, a big problem for two reasons. One is that uh, some of these STIs, HPV being a good case uh, example, of, is that it can really have some long-term uh, profound implications for your health. And second is that uh, people will often form new relationships, and because they're asymptomatic, uh, they often sometimes start using condoms in a relationship, but then they uh, transition to uh, hormonal birth control, which doesn't protect them against STIs. That's right. Uh, definitely that stigma persists out there. And I, I had a patient once who had herpes, and genital herpes, um, and had been told that she'd had genital herpes long before she came to see me, but was in denial. She came to me to see me because she was hoping it was genitourinary syndrome of menopause because it was itchy and burning, and, and those are common symptoms of GSM. Um, but she was still sexually active with her with these open sores and, and lesions, and just absolutely refused um, to to believe this. And so. Are, 
are do, are you seeing um, people denying it or you know not seeking the appropriate diagnosis and treatment, and therefore that affects the spread? Uh, that's definitely one factor, and that ties into uh, the stigma. But I would say overall, it's uh, it's a lack of knowledge, uh-huh. and and often it's. Uh, there's there's almost a, a kind of a stigma attached in some people's minds to using condoms because uh, you often see when people are uh, forming relationships that they see the discontinuation of condoms as sort of a, a symbolic of them really being a couple now. Right. And uh, so that's when they're adopting uh, other forms of birth control. We do know from our studies uh, in partnership with Trojan that uh, even for people who do use condoms, uh, their primary reason for using them is often birth control. It's not uh, because they're concerned about STIs. So we really do need to do uh, a better job, one, of uh, educating people about STIs, but also uh, educating people and talking to people about how they can uh, integrate condoms into their uh, relationships in a way that's uh, pleasurable and satisfying. And maybe a little and bit one more. of the things, one of the story, one of the things we did, we've also found in our studies is that when we ask people how uh, pleasurable their uh, sexual activities are, uh, we find that people who use condoms uh, are just as likely to rate their uh, sexual activities as pleasurable as people who don't. So it's kind of a misconception also Mm -hmm. that uh, condoms are somehow going to reduce the quality of your sex life. Mm -hmm. And of course, once you become a little bit more educated, uh, incorporating condoms into your sex life actually can uh, relieve a lot of anxiety that you might be carrying around. It, it certainly can. That's exactly what I was thinking. Or And, and there's lots of different, um, you know, first I, I want to step back, um, just like, for example, chlamydia. It's a common sexually transmitted infection that can affect infect both men and women, and it can cause serious, even permanent damage to a woman's reproductive system. It can also uh, impact fertility uh, on a temporary basis and, and making it you know, difficult for her to get pregnant later on. Um, this is education that is you know, quite needed uh, for uh, girls and women out there um, who also have a role in whether um, or not their partner uh, where's a condom, you know, the importance of, of protection and, and prevention, um, you know, and, and so as I say that, that, you know, that, that a woman has a role in her partner um, wearing protection, you know, to prevent STIs, what, how does that play into all of this? Well, that's certainly an important factor. And I think to reinforce your point, uh, we have a uh, vaccine for HPV now, mm-hmm. uh, but many young adults today uh, aren't vaccinated uh, for a number of reasons. Maybe they, um, when they were in school, the HPV vaccination programs weren't fully in effect. And what we find is that uh, many uh, young adult men, in fact, probably most of them, are not vaccinated against HPV. And HPV uh, often remains asymptomatic for a long period of time, uh, but it, it's a, a growing uh, cause of many different forms of cancer, mm-hmm. including 
cancer among men. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's uh, another place where uh, we need much greater awareness. Absolutely. And a lot of times people think this won't happen to me, um, especially Absolutely. in the heat of the moment. And and people associating condomless sex with more pleasure. But a lot of the condoms today are ribbed or, you know, they have uh, textures that actually increase the pleasure um, for both partners. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, every, every, uh, every week or month, we see new uh, types of condoms coming out. And uh, the condom companies are working very hard on creating uh, condoms that uh, are uh, really minimize the reduction in sensation. And uh, so, you know, we always want to encourage people to uh, experiment with different types of condoms. Uh, there's really a wide range of, uh, of condoms to choose from, and you can have a lot of fun with your partner finding the one that's going to work the best for you. Yeah, we just had Halloween. I know there's glow-in-the-dark condoms. Uh, you know, <laughs> There's flavored condoms, studded, textured condoms. There's all sorts of different um, condoms, some with lube, some that are warmed pleasure-shaped. I mean, there's a whole variety out there, and and variety is the spice of life. (laughs) Um, Let's attach it to condoms. Uh, Dr. McKay, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. It's great information. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath uh, rescheduling the sleep segment to next week. That would have put you to sleep anyway. And a much more exciting segment right now. Are you somebody living with diabetes on oral medications or multiple daily insulin injections? Are you looking for ways to better manage your diabetes? Well, Nadia Broomer, my guest on the line, who we did find her number, uh, is joining me to talk about uh, this new revelation in uh, in glucose monitoring. Thanks so much, Nadia. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I'm so sorry. No worries, no worries. (laughs) Anyway, I love technology, you know, when it works. (laughs) Mostly it doesn't work for me. In fact, I have to make an appointment at the Genius Bar (laughs) this week, tomorrow, (laughs) just to cope with my next project. Anyway, um, so Nadia, tell me, uh, you have diabetes type 1? Yeah, yeah, I've been living with diabetes for 19 years. I was diagnosed when I was 16. Oh, wow. Um, and so tell me what life was like when you're, um, you know, with you worrying about your blood sugars and um, what it was like when you were a teenager. Tough time to be diagnosed. Um, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> I don't know if there's ever a good time to be uh, diagnosed with diabetes. But I think um, partic- in particular, adolescence is a very challenging time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely was. Uh, you know, the previous guest talked about the classic symptoms of hypoglycemia. And so I was peeing a lot and I lost a lot of weight. And so being a 16 year old girl losing a lot of weight uh, was not really great. Uh, in right. Terms of high school. <laughs> Plus, you're hanging out with your friends more. You're going out, you're getting your license, yeah. you're going to fast food restaurants and other places, you know, alcohol. I know, alcohol. Yeah. 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 <laughs> The whole thing, the partying, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. all of that stuff was very challenging. Yes, I'm certain that it was. And so um, you managed yourself with in- daily injections of insulin and checking your blood sugar with a finger prick? Yeah, yeah, I did that for about a year that I was on 10 needles and kind of the classic finger prick. And then oh. um, I moved to a, an insulin pump mm-hmm. uh, when I was 17 and I got on the uh, continuous, well, it was called sensors and transmitters at the time pretty early in around 2006, but 
the the technology now is just totally different and just absolutely where it needs to be. <laughs> I could tell that um, kind of when they first introduced the, those kinds of products and uh, that, you know, this idea of knowing where your blood sugar is all the time and just how that would be, um, yeah, life-changing. And do you um, find your sure. blood sugars are more stable because you are continuously gluco- uh, gl- continuously monitoring them? Yes. Yeah. A lot more stable. It's a lot easier to, uh, yeah, know where you are if you don't have to just like constantly stop and pull everything out and prick your finger and right. um, just knowing what it is, is uh, pretty powerful and, and what it has been. And the like Dexam G6 and some of those, the newer products actually are predicting which way your blood sugar is going as well. Oh, wow. Um, now yeah, tell me exactly like how this works. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's good. It's uh, So I've got a, a sensor that kind of sits under my skin and then I've got a transmitter on top. Mm-hmm. And so my Dexcom G6 uh, basically Bluetooths to my phone as well as to my insulin pump. And it kind of forms a closed loop with my insulin pump, but it also puts a graph on it. And so it, radio- it kind of sends a signal every five minutes of what my blood sugar is. Um, which allows uh, my insulin pump to dose my insulin accordingly, uh, and as well as it predicts my highs and my lows, so I can correct for a high if maybe I miscalculated uh, a meal, uh, or if I was exercising too much and uh, I'm going to go low, then I know before I'm low and I can correct before I kind of get into the, the feelings of hypoglycemia. Right. That's amazing. Um, so yeah. you're, you're actually, it's just detecting your blood sugar and then it's giving you, you're being provided with the insulin through your pump that yeah. you need. Yeah. The closed loop systems are pretty slick. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And how often would you be getting uh, insulin then during the day? Uh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. So it's a slow infusion yeah. of it. Yeah, it's an infusion um, of insulin just underneath my skin, and so I'm wearing my insulin pump all the time with that. And, and how how big is that insulin pump? Um, it's uh, I don't know, it's about the size of a deck of cards. Okay. Or a little bit smaller than that, I suppose. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's attached to you, is it? Is it? Yeah, yeah. So it's got tubing, so the insulin kind of sits in the pump with kind of all of the technology, and then the tubing kind of goes into the infusion set in me. Yeah. But is it implanted in you, or is it a? Uh, pardon my ignorance on that. Is it stitched no, in? Okay. <laughs> uh, no. So it's it's it's, it's external. It's external. Uh, and okay. I just change the infusion set every uh, three days or so. Okay, fantastic. And this sounds like it has changed your life. Am I correct in that? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it means that I can I can do a lot more than what I than I could before. That's for sure. And and a lot of it's really associated with freedom. Totally and flexibility. Yeah, freedom, flex- and peace of mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was giving a talk to um, some business people, entrepreneurs, on Friday, and um, they, you know, I asked them for the definition of success, and. Um, you know, of course, they were all like attaining my goals and making millions. And I said, it's actually peace of mind. <laughs> that is really, that's and yeah, that's totally, it, you know, especially as it relates to your health or your wealth. Um, doesn't matter how much money you have or, you know, how healthy you are, but as long as you have peace of mind. Nadia, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the program tonight. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.